You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Our scripture reading today is taken from Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the Son of Man, that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is God's word. I want to invite you to open to Psalm chapter 8. The text that was just read so beautifully. Now, uh, if I'm being honest with you, when I uh, opened Psalm 8, my immediate thought was, I might go with a different psalm. It just seemed a little simple, Uh, and I read it over and over again, and once I read it the fifth time, I was like, you know what, I think I'm going to go with this one. It's going to be my Christmas sermon. Then I read it uh, the 26th time. On Tuesday of this last week, and that's when it clicked. That's when it hit me. I was on my basement carpet floor, weeping. Just the wonders of Psalm 8. That's how Bible reading is a lot of the time, actually. Uh, There's a famous Bible teacher named Barbara Boyd. This was like in the 60s. Uh, There's a there's a famous best-selling author and pastor named Tim Keller, and Tim Keller credits Barbara Boyd as the person who taught him how to read, study, and teach the Bible. And Barbara Boyd used to take her students uh, through one verse of the Bible. She would just give them one verse and say, what I want you to do is write down 50 observations about this one verse. And typically, like most students, they would go at it for 15 minutes and quit after like, all I got is like 10 observations. But she would challenge them, press through, don't give up until you reach 50 observations about this verse. And it was always around 30 minutes that she found that students had an epiphany about that verse. 30 minutes at 50 observations, boom, something fresh hit them. In a way, it never would if they just skimmed over it, like we tend to do in our Bible reading. You know, you know, the most effective Bible reading is less jet skiing and more scuba diving, by the way. And at the end of their study, Barbara would ask, which of you recorded your most powerful takeaway from that verse during the first few minutes of your study? And, of course, no one raised their hand. And this is what Barbara Boyd said. She said, you never find the largest nuggets of gold at the mouth of the cave. You have to traverse inside. You have to, if you want to find the greatest treasures, you have to go exploring. Exploring takes time. And if you were to explore Psalm 8, like we're going to do together this morning, here's the gold you'll find. Astonishment. You'll find some awe. You'll find wonder. You remember when Christmas used to be like awe to you? Wonder to you? Exciting for you? When you were like 11, running down the stairs? Then you reached your 30s, then you became Scrooge. 
Psalm 8 wants to restore to you the wonder of Christmas. More importantly, the wonder of the Lord of Christmas, Jesus Christ. You see, that's what David has here in this psalm. He has astonishment. That's why he asked the question, which is the penultimate question in the center of the verse. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him? You see, David's in awe. He's looking at this majestic God who knows who David is, who cares about David. And he says, why would you care about me? David struck that the majestic God is also the mindful God. And if you understand this verse, if you understand this chapter of the Bible, like David understood it, you'll understand what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. You ever heard that phrase, the fear of the Lord? It's all over the Bible. In fact, it's the gateway to the, the Proverbs. The Proverbs, one of the beginning Proverbs is, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So if you want to have any sort of wisdom or knowledge, you've got to fear God, is what it says. This is also in the later, or early in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 10 and Exodus 20. You guys know we were in the middle of an Exodus series recently. When God gives the Ten Commandments to his people, he gives the Ten Commandments, and do you know what he says after that? He said, like, all right, Cliff Notes version of everything I just gave you, all my commandments, here it is. Fear me. If you do that, you'll be good. Psalm 147 says, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. Isaiah 11, which is a Christmas prophecy about Jesus, says that Jesus would delight in the fear of the Lord. What is all this talking about? This fear of God, right? Like fear leads to wisdom. Fear helps me obey the Ten Commandments. God delights when I fear Him. How do I delight in the fear of God? Psalmate. That is the gold nugget you'll find. That is the treasure. Because when the Bible talks about fearing God, it's not like when you see a spider, you fear the spider. Fear, literally in the Bible, means awe, wonder, wonder of God. Obedience to God's commands, wisdom in God's ways, any kind of growth in the Christian life requires you first to look up at the heavens and say, wow. And if you are a Christian, not looking up saying, wow, sin will soon follow. Because if you do not have an awe of God, you will replace it for an awe of something else. There's nothing more dangerous than losing your awe of God. Nothing more dangerous than to be bored with God. And if we become bored with God, the problem is not with God, it's with us. It's with our perception of Him. And so here we go to Psalm 8 to see God as He is. Culture will tell you God is small. God will tell you He is big. So let's rekindle our awe and wonder of Him as we jump into Psalm 8. Two points. Those two points are we see God's majesty and we see God's mindfulness. Two astonishing realities that if you understand, it will change you forever. Let's start with the first one, God's majesty, which we see in the earth. If you look at the first verse, the psalm actually begins and ends with the same verse. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, this word majestic could be translated as excellent or beautiful or splendid. So David is like, God, how beautiful is your name? How excellent, how splendid is your name? Now, when the Bible speaks of God's name, it's referring to his character or his nature. How excellent is the being of God, David says. We don't have words to adequately express how amazing our God is. And how majestic is he, not just in one confined little geographic location, but how majestic is his name all over the earth? I know many of you are world travelers. You love on your vacations going to cool spots, right? And wherever you go, you'll find the majesty of God. You go to the red rocks of Colorado, the sequoias in Yosemite, the glaciers in Alaska, the plains in Africa, the peaks in Nepal, the barrier reefs in Australia, the northern lights in Norway. What do you find? The majesty of God. You just drive on the highway in Maryland in the fall. You see the colors of the leaves. That is some majesty, man. Fun fact, did you know the song West Virginia? You know, West Virginia country roads, take me home to where I belong, West Virginia, mountain mama, take me home, country roads. Fun fact, that song is actually about Maryland, not West Virginia. 
Look it up. It's about Clopper Road in Montgomery County, near where I grew up. So I just ruined every West Virginia's life right now. My point, though, is if you just drive the highways of Maryland and see the leaves change, wow, God is so particular and so wonderful. And let's go across the world. Wherever you want to go, you'll see the wonders of God's creative glory. All of these things are breadcrumbs leading you to his majesty, are they not? He's not a God you can put in your pocket. He's the majestic God over all the earth. And notice David says here, O Lord, our Lord. What a juxtaposition that is. You can't tell in the English, but in the Hebrew, those words for Lord are different words. The first use of the word Lord is the, the word Yahweh, which is the name, the covenant name for God. The second word for Lord there is the, the word Adonai, which means master or ruler. What David is saying is, you can have a relationship with this majestic God. He's not just Lord of the heavens, he's our Lord, David says. You ever uh, know someone famous and someone else brings them up and you're like, oh, I know that guy. I went to high school with him. You know, I went to high school with where, the high school where uh, Hootie and the Blowfish went. I just love telling people that. It feels good, right? I played basketball with Jason Derulo once, so whenever his song comes up, I'm like, I played basketball with him once. It just feels good to say that. I don't really know him, but I pretend like I do, you know? Maybe you do the same thing. We actually get to do that about this majestic God. I know him and he knows me. We're actually friends. The one who is majestic and all the earth is also our Lord. He's not just majestic in the earth, but he's he's majestic above the heavens, it says. It says, you have set your glory above the heavens. So David shifts from looking at God's magnificence horizontally across the earth to vertically above the, the heavens. Now, this word glory, put simply, is the sum of all of God's attributes. Think about all of that God is. His power, His glory, his, or His holiness, His love, His justice. All together, that's His glory, or the weight of who He is. And we get a glimpse of all that. We look up at the skies. You see, what this is saying is that the universe teaches us something about God, what theologians call a general revelation. You can't deny God exists. You can't deny God is glorious. Just by looking up, do you see the universe's infinite length? You know the universe is infinite? It keeps going. In fact, if our galaxy, our Milky Way galaxy, happened to be Hypothetically, the size of North America, our solar system, you know, the sun, Earth, Mars, not Pluto, our solar system would be the size of a coffee cup, and the Earth would be a tiny speck you couldn't even see in that cup. And we know that our Milky Way galaxy is one of at least 100 billion galaxies. Astronomers estimate that there are approximately, uh, well, th those are the ones that we can see, but there are more that we can't see. Astronomers estimate that there are approximately two trillion galaxies in the universe, some of which we can't see. In fact, uh, they say that only 4% of the universe is visible to us. 4%. It shows you something about God, doesn't it? He made that. Now, not only did he make the, the, the breadth of it, but the depth of it and the detail of it. Like, think about the care and detail in the universe. If the earth were just a little bit closer to the sun, we'd all burn. If the earth were a little bit further from the sun, we'd all freeze. That level of detail reveals to you his character, how caring and attentive he is to you. David continues, verse 3, it says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place... I just think it's so interesting. David doesn't say the universe is the work of God's arm. Not even the work of God's hand. It's the work of his fingers. Like fingers is what you use to make a model train, man. It's how you put together Legos. That's how God put together the universe. 
The universe is tiny compared to God. He has to stoop down to work with his fingers to make it. No wonder David starts and ends the psalm with a praise to his majesty. Oh, how majestic is your name, O Lord. Now, <laughs> it's very easy to gloss over all this and to just go on with your life. Can we just talk about some real life applications of what this means, if all this is true? How about number one, reverence. If God really did make all that with his fingers, how should you regard him? How should you speak to him? Is that the kind of God you stroll up to and say, hey, here's what I need today? Or is he the kind of God that you fall on your face and say, here's all of me today? How does that change how you listen to this sermon, man? Like Psalm 8, is that God speaking directly to you? If that God is speaking to you, is that the kind of thing where you're just like, eh, where are we going for lunch after this? How does it change how you view his church, the hope of the world in which he's, he's restoring lost people to his son, Jesus? It will change your reverence, man. It won't just change your reverence, it will change your delight. It will make life fun again if you really understand and meditate and believe this. How? You see, what this text means is that God is an artist. You see, the, the scriptures tell us God didn't have to make the world and the universe. He wanted to. He delighted to. It brought him joy because he's an artist. And you can always see a glimpse of the artist in their art. You always learn about the creator through their creation. In fact, did you know Vincent van Gogh is Starry Night? Art historians tell us that we know Vincent van Gogh struggled with mental illness and had an inner turbulence within him because of the manner in which he painted his Starry Night. You learn about Vincent by looking at his painting. Many of you know the famous anonymous artist Banksy. No one actually knows who he is, but he's there, right? And we know about Banksy a limited amount, but we know he has a heart for the oppressed. He has a vitriol for capitalism. How do we know all that? His art. Do you know he has a, a piece called Love is in the Bin? That piece was auctioned for $1.4 million. And the craziest thing I've ever seen, the, the, that piece was in a big frame. And the minute the auctioneer hit the gavel and said, sold, $1.4 million, instantly the frame was actually a shredder and it shredded the painting and destroyed it. Ironically, the painting was worth more after that. What does that tell you about Banksy? It tells you he has a, a hate for the ridiculous cost of art. That's for the aristocrats and not for the ordinary people. It tells you he mocks capitalism in a sense. You see, in the same way, each fabric of this beautiful world and this incredible universe unveils to you a new mystery of who God is. And doesn't this give delight to the, a, new, a fresh delight to the little things of life? It gives you a new view of creation. You see glimpses of the divine wherever you go. This is why Jonathan Edwards, a famous pastor, would just stroll through the forest and write notes of all the delights he would see, the trees, the spider webs, the, the animals, and he'd write it down and rejoice in them. This is God's gift to tell me a little bit more about who he is. This is a, a great verse for the biologist who studies uh, the wonders of creation. We learn more about God in every species, every genome. Creation shows us the wisdom of God, the joy of God, the humor of God. I mean, there's just some things in creation that are just funny to me. Maybe to you, like, why do men have nipples? I have no idea. I just think God's funny in that way. You ever seen, by the way, have you ever seen a blobfish? I have a picture of it. Look at this. Tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. He made that, man. God is funny to me, man. He made me. Get that, by the way, get that off. I just distracted. <laughs> he made me. I'm a Middle Eastern man with a patchy beard and five chest hairs. You tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. He took a Muslim kid and made him a pastor in inner city Baltimore. Like, God's funny. 
we learn about God by looking at the things he's made. In fact, there's a book by uh, an author named Ross uh, Gay called The Book of Delights. And uh, he says in the preface of his book that he decided one day, to, every day for a year, to write down a short reflection of an unexpected delight he saw that day. And he says in the preface that writing down a delight every day changed his life. Because why? Because you and I tend to often write our complaints and our frustrations in bold, capital, 18-point, Times New Roman font. But we often write our delights that God has sent in 8-point, italicized, very thin font that we can't even read. Probably like Wingding's font. I have no idea what this is say. And he said, the more I started to write, the more that I saw I was drowning in delights. And my complaints were making it hard for me to see them. This will give you a new delight if you realize all of this is his and he gave it to me to enjoy. Look at all these delights he sent my way. Tell that to the frustrated business owner who's always worried about what something's wrong. Why don't you start writing down your delights? And this is what our hearts were made to do, to behold his delight, moment by moment, day by day. And this will affect your holiness as well. See, the reason we sin is we trade God's glory for lesser glories. We trade beholding God for beholding sex, beholding money, beholding achievement, beholding power. Many of you, and I've been victim of this in the past in my life, many of you are trying to defeat sin the wrong way. Maybe you're captive to a human being's opinion of you right now. And when they're pleased with you, it's a five-minute high. When they're displeased with you, it's a week-long depression. I've been there. And usually the way Christians today fight sin is they say to themselves, stop it. Stop caring so much. God, help me to stop caring so much. I don't want to care so much. And it doesn't work. Or you're stuck in lust. I know the statistics would say the majority of you are looking at pornography. And many Christians are stuck in pornography because they know they shouldn't. They probably don't want to, but they tell themselves, stop thinking about sex. It doesn't work. Because the minute I tell you to stop thinking about something, what are you thinking about? I think I told you not to think about if I told you to stop thinking about a blue elephant, what are you going to think about? A blue elephant. So what do you do? Here's what you have to realize. This is the key to defeating sin. Sin is not removing or eradicating a lesser glory. Sin is replacing a lesser glory with the ultimate glory, God. It's putting on the throne of your heart the majesty of God. Being in awe and wonder of who he is and letting that delight you over anything else he made. If you're consumed with God's beauty, you won't be distracted by a person on the internet's beauty. Look at the God who made the universe holding it like it's a snow globe. Do you see him delighting over you? Do you see him saying, I'm pleased with you? That will drown out the voices of the people who don't count, who are displeased with you. Focus on his opinion, and the others won't matter so much. This is how you defeat sin. And listen, I need, you to, I need you to hear this. Your sin doesn't love you. It doesn't love you. But he does. So behold him. And sin will, you will lose taste of it. Fourth application within this point, I would say, is courage. Last one on, on this. Psalm um, 112 says, The righteous are not afraid of bad news. Why? Because his heart is firm, his heart is steady, trusting in the Lord. If you really believe that this God who holds the universe will not forsake you. 
He loves you. He's for you. He has you. What can this world do to me? What can man do to me? It, 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 it puts your courage on steroids, man. Uh, this week, I've been having some really bad stomach issues, and so I went to get, see my doctor, and um, he asked me to take some blood tests, and I got my blood test back. And come to find out, my, my liver has uh, some issues. I think the, the range of like a healthy liver, ALTLS numbers is like 10 to 40. My numbers are like 349, which my wife was really concerned. My doctor was concerned. They brought me back, gave me an ultrasound. And um, we don't know what, what's causing it. I apparently have an enlarged liver. Could be hepatitis A. Could be cancer. It could be a stomach ache. We don't, it's, I'm not freaking out about it, right? It's, I looked up my symptoms on WebMD, and <laughs> pretty sure I have the bubonic plague right now. I, and I've, I've actually sought many of your counsel. We have a ton of doctors in our church. It's actually very uncomfortable how many of the people in our church have a precise description of my current stool right now. <laughs> Thank you, by the way, for your counsel. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm just sitting there on Tuesday in my basement reading Psalm 8, thinking, I don't know what's going to happen to me. I don't know what's wrong with me. But I know who has me. And I just started crying, like, why would this God care about me? But he does. And if, if nothing's wrong with me, great, I get to continue to serve him. If something is wrong with me, great, I get to go be with him. What can you do to me? It's a win-win. Do you see, if you really believe this God is for you, what is going to happen that's going to thwart his plan? He made everything with his fingers, man. If you believe this, you'll be good. It'll change your holiness. It'll change your reverence. It'll change your delight. It will change your courage. We see God's majesty in the earth above the heavens. And then we see it finally here, interestingly, out of the mouths of babies, David says. You see that? Verse 2, out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength, which is quite a contrast, isn't it? You want to see the majesty of God? Well, okay, you can go to the Alps, you can go to Appalachians, you can go to another galaxy, or you can go to the nursery. You'll find the same thing on Mars that you will find in the maternity ward, the majesty of God. There's so many implications to this that are so interesting. What David is saying here is, is quite a contrast. He's saying God's glory fills the earth, it, it fills the heavens, and yet his glory is also echoed in city kids. Now, if God's glory is revealed in the cries of babies, this is a great church to be a part of because we got lots of crying going on with the babies. In fact, you guys can't keep your hands off each other. You have so many kids, man. Like, we have grown, like, tripled our kids in the last year. You will see. <laughs> Thank you for the illustration. I want you to think about this verse the next time you hear a baby cry. Or actually, think about this verse the next time you're serving in city kids. You're not babysitting. You're beholding the glory of God. Now, I know it doesn't feel like it at 3 a.m. in the morning when they won't shut up. <laughs> we love them, but stop. <laughs> you know, like, it's hard. I want to sleep. But God is doing something remarkable with their cries. He is, the text says, quieting the enemy. Look at what he says, verse 2. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So God uses the cries of little children in some way to silence his adversaries. That is, when, when a child is making noise, expressing life, continuing humanity to another generation, the cries coming out of their mouths are testifying to the glory and majesty of our Creator God. And that noise then drowns out the lies of the enemy. It's almost as if the psalmist is in the delivery room with us, saying, look at this beautiful child that just came out of this woman, and you're going to tell me that someone didn't make this? 
Listen to him cry. You're going to tell me there's not a God? He silences the enemy. He silences the lies by saying, look. Children are evidence of God's creative glory. In fact, I think this is why there's clear, objective, statistical evidence that the more kids you have, the more likely you are to believe in God. You can look it up. And the less kids you have, the more likely you are to be an atheist. Because kids reveal to you, like, there is a God. In fact, this is the number one reason why a lot of uh, adults come back to church or start going to church is they have kids. They behold God's glory in the delivery room or in, in, in the child's playroom. And they realize, we need to get our kids, we need to get our family to church, man. Now, this is the difference between me and God. If I'm going to get in a brawl, give me the homies, man. Give me the dudes with muscles. Give me, like, one of our members, Charlito. That guy squats, like, 600 pounds. I want him when I'm in a fight. Give me Eric, who's leading worship. I lifted it with him last week, and I, this man is, like, deadlifting, like, oh, half a ton. And I'm like, I feel so safe right now. <laughs> like, I got my bodyguard next to me every Sunday. This man is so strong. If I'm going to in a fight, give me Charlito and Eric. But not God, because God don't need no security. He doesn't need muscles. He can win with the infants. He says, I'm going to silence the enemy with these weak little babies. Because God likes winning through weakness to show his strength. I mean, this is what we saw at the beginning of Exodus in our series in Exodus, right? The most powerful man on the planet, Pharaoh, is like, I'm going to wipe out God's people. I'm going to kill all the babies. And what does God do? He he restores and redeems Israel through a baby named Moses. He uses three women in the Nile River, and that baby becomes their redeemer. And they're saved. He did it 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, where Mary, this young girl, has a baby named Jesus, and God silences the enemy forever through the mouth of that infant. It's remarkable how God wins battles through weakness. And this ought to be an encouragement to us this morning. No matter how small you're feeling this morning, how weak you feel this morning, let me encourage you to continue to magnify the name of your God because when you do, you put silence on your enemies. The devil and his realm are pushed back when weak people praise God. And let's remember that God loves using the weak. If you think you're too weak to be used by God, you have it twisted. Usually we think we're too strong to be used by God. God doesn't use faint strength. He uses only weak people who admit they're weak to show his strength. And let's also be a people who protect the weak, the vulnerable, the oppressed, the orphan, the child in the womb. Because the majesty of God is displayed not just in the earth, not just around the heavens, but through the lives of these little ones. So David takes in all this majesty, right? His majesty in the earth, above the heavens, out of babies, and he transitions to talk about an astounding juxtaposition, God's mindfulness despite these realities. He's struck with the idea that God cares about him in verse 4. You can almost imagine David being outside on a starlit night, looking up at the fields, lo looking at, out at the skies, and thinking about the greatness of God, thinking about how God made all of this with the wave of his finger, this is effortless work for God. And then David is struck with what we talked about earlier, awe, wonder. Verse 4, he says, what is man? We just sang this a second ago. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Now, this word mindful literally means to remember. David goes, why in the world would this God choose to even take the time to think about me? Why would he care to even know my name? Which is a crazy thought, isn't it? Like, if you were to walk into the room that God was in, God would know your name. He would say, Amy, Hannah, Nick, Adam. He knows your name. David is looking at the glory of God. And the glory made him feel, by comparison, worthless. David is looking at the vastness of the universe and of God. And the vastness made him feel, by comparison, insignificant. And David asks, 
why would this God even be interested in little old me? And yet this majestic God is the mindful God. This awesome God is the aware God. And so when you feel like a speck in this dog-eat-dog universe, when you feel like this Christmas season, no one really sees you, when you're sitting around a table full of people and you feel like no one really cares about you, know that you fill his mind. He knows your name. What a wonderful thought that will keep you going even when you feel like the loneliest person in the world. Now, if you're here this morning and you're a skeptic, you're not a Christian, I want you to know we're really glad you're here. We love that you come. Please keep coming. Can I just ask you a question, just challenge you for a second? If David felt this insignificant and worthless in this massive universe, even when he knew that the world was created by a, a, a magnificent being who knew his name, how much more reason do you have, skeptic or atheist or agnostic, to feel insignificant and worthless when you know the universe does not give a rip about you and it was made because some molecules collided together. By your own belief, you would say that you are the product of molecular chance and that the evolutionary ball just bounced in your favor. No one made you, no one created you for a purpose, you're just here, right? In fact, there's a famous atheist and philosopher named Bertrand Russell whose most notable work is a paper or an essay called A Free Man's Worship. And he plays out the realities of the skeptic's worldview. And he, he says, if we really think about atheism and, and agnosticism, his conclusion is that the world science presents for us for belief is, quote, purposeless. Purposeless. It's void of meaning, he says. In fact, let me read a quote of something he said. This will summarize kind of a lot of his work. He says, Man is the product of causes which had no provision of the end they were achieving. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only, listen to this, this is the key, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Here's what he means. Translation. Since this world has no creator, since this world has a certain end, the sun will burn out and we will all die. Everything you do now, no matter what it is you do, doesn't really make a difference in the end. All right, have a great Sunday. He says, because the universe is blind, because the world is impersonal, it doesn't care about you. And that means you could live an amazing, good life, or you could be a serial killer. In the end, it doesn't matter. Because you have no purpose, you have no one who formed you. You will die, the whole civilization will die. He, he talks about here about the, the, the brightness of human Jesus, genius will be extinct. It will be as if it never happened. Because the universe doesn't care and it's blind and impersonal. So, so what are you? Russell says, if you're a skeptic, what are you? Does anything you do matter? Are you significant? And Russell says the only intellectually honest answer is no. You don't matter. And you have to build your life on what he calls, quote, a foundation of unyielding despair. If, you, if that's really what you believe about the universe, about the world, 
you have no other choice but to build your life on a foundation of unyielding despair. And that will devour you. It will turn your soul into a black hole and you will become a Christmas Scrooge that hates people. Because they're just in the way. And nothing you do ultimately matters. It will not count. No one cares. And all you have is what philosophers call nihilism, which the genius Nietzsche, who you know, is famous for saying God is dead, the nihilist personified. You know how this nihilist Nietzsche died? He died clinging to a horse, refusing to let go, saying, life is a long death and I am a fool. That's what this foundation of yielding despair will build up for you. Now, I know that there are skeptics in this room, and you would say, no, 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 I matter. I'm significant. My life counts. How do you know that? Scientifically. I heard a story recently of a, a medical resident who's a Christian. It was, I know many of you are medical residents. He was doing his rounds at a, a psychiatric hospital. And the attending who was leading the rounds led them to a patient who was mentally insane, covered in his own urine, had just no life, basically. Hopeless. And the doctor was like, how are we going to treat this patient? And one female resident uh, spoke up to the attending to the room and said, we just need to show this patient that he's a valuable person, that he's not trash, that he does matter, he is important. Every human being is valuable, right? And the doctor leading the residents, the attending leading the residents, looked at her in the room and said, how do you know that? How do you know he matters? How do you know he's valuable? Prove it. Scientifically. Now, I imagine he's not that much of a jerk. He's probably using the Socratic method, just pushing back a little bit. But I think, to a degree, he's right. If Bertrand Russell, if Nietzsche, you know, Cambridge University named their philosophy department after Bertrand Russell. And if that guy couldn't figure out a foundation for a living for the skeptic, what thinks you can? And... You might say here right now as a skeptic, we as human beings all generally agree that every human being matters. So that's why every human being matters, because we as humans agree. Popular vote. Okay, so you and I, let's go to Nazi Germany. Can we all, because the popular vote says we should kill all the Jews, is that what we're going to do? Or 300 years ago, popular vote says I can own you as a slave. Is that, is that what we're going to do? See, human beings have no moral high ground without a God. They have no intrinsic significance without a God. And this is why none of those residents could answer that doctor. Now, they all hated his response. They were all very uncomfortable with it, but they couldn't think of any scientific empirical evidence that proved all human beings matter, and they got very upset, except the Christian resident. The Christian resident stood up and said, I know this patient matters. I know his life is worth something. How? Psalmate. Because the being behind the universe, the one who made everything with his fingers says, I know this patient's name. I care for him. Therefore, he matters. In the words of David, he is mindful of him. You see, it's only the biblical God, it's only the artist God who forms the universe with his fingers and made you for his glory that you can honestly, honestly, with intellectual integrity, say, my life matters and I have value and there's objective right and wrong. Otherwise, if you have any intellectual integrity at all, you have to admit the universe does not give a rip about you, it will soon crush you and forget you, and you will fall into the same pit of unyielding despair that Russell and Nietzsche fell into. And just to close on this, I know, I know there's, I talked to many of you, I know there's skeptics in this room who's like, okay, fair point, I'll think on that a little bit, but I just can't believe in a, like a virgin birth. I can't believe in the Son of God becoming a man. I can't believe in all this fiction, right? In fact, there's a scholar named J.I. Packer who says, there's nothing so fantastical in, fi in fiction as the incarnation. So which we would agree, like a virgin birth giving birth to God's Son does sound a little wild, right? To which I would say to you, Christians believe 
in the virgin birth of Jesus. Skeptics believe in the virgin birth of the universe. Choose your miracle. I'm going to choose the God who became a man and died for us. God cares. And that gives you value. That gives your life significance. Now, why does God care? Why do you matter? Second point under here of God's mindfulness is God, you know, he crowns you. The text says, verse 5, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. This is a wild verse. I don't love the ESV translation here. It translates the Hebrew a little bit awkwardly uh, because the word heavenly beings in the ESV is the Hebrew word Elohim, which can be translated as God. It can be translated as heavenly beings. It can be translated as the divine. I think the CSB translation better gets across the Hebrew. It says, you made him little less than God. You made him little less than God. I think that's clearer. Basically, what this is saying is that you and I were made in the image of God, what uh, is called the Imago Dei. That is to say, humans have divine dignity. That human beings are more valuable than your labradoodle is. I know it's frustrating when your neighbor uses your trash can and you want to be angry at them. But the Imago Dei says, your neighbor matters more than your trash can, so stop being so angry with them. We tend to get angry at human beings and love them more than people, but God says people are really what matter. Why? Because we're stamped with the image of God. When God made us, he made us like him. He made us rational beings. He made us moral beings. He made us self-conscious. He gave us a soul. Therefore, every human being is infinitely precious. Even the man in the psychiatric ward, in his own, laying in his own urine. No matter what human being you're looking at, Regardless of their age, their ethnicity, their language, their socioeconomic status, their personality profile, they are worthy of your dignity, love, and care. So when they're talking to you, listen to them. When they're feeling something, feel with them. They matter, this says. And it's radically inconsistent to say you worship the majestic God of the universe and then treat God's supreme creation, human beings that are made in that God's image, as worthless or of little importance. And yet this is something we do all the time. Every human being is worthy of our greatest care, our greatest attention. And if you really understand this, you really get this, you're going to start to feel out of place in every major American political party. Because you'll soon realize abortion's wrong, but you also say uh, oppression is wrong, racism is wrong, we need to fight for social justice, we need to protect all of human life from the womb to the tomb, and there ain't no political party that values all of human life from the womb to the tomb. Something I find interesting about the text is uh, it says... If you look at it, we are not made a little more than the animals. It says we are made actually a little less than God. How about that? I find that astounding. This is the kind of divine dignity we have been given. And it's not just intrinsic to our nature, but it's it's related to our vocation or what we do for work. Verse 6 says, you have given dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whoever passes along the paths of the seas. So this is echoing Genesis 1 and 2, that we've been called to exercise dominion over all of creation, what's known as by theologians as the cultural mandate, to take the raw materials of the earth and to cultivate them into things that are beautiful and wonderful and enjoyable. And, and actually, God makes a list here. He says, sheep, oxen, beasts, fish of the sea. Pastor Wilson loves verse 8. He loves exercising dominion over the fish of the sea. That's like his favorite hobby. I've never been able to exercise that dominion. I'm just sitting there eating snacks with a fish, fishing pole in my hand. I can never catch them. I'm still working on exercising dominion over my dog right now. But we are called to exercise dominion over all creation. Which means God has given you a job, a vocation, a royal status that's pretty remarkable to create safety and order and efficiency and excellence around nature. And did you know in the ancient Near East, when this was written, only kings were given this kind of dignity to represent their God and to rule and reign in his stead. But every human being that's been made has this kingly status, if you will, this royal status to take the raw materials of God's creation and bring order and good out of them. And 
It doesn't matter if you're a waiter or a president, your job has value, this verse says. The designer takes the sheep's raw materials, its wool, and turns it into a wool blanket that keeps you warm on Christmas by the fire. What a glorious thing. The chef takes a fish and turns it into a dragon roll, into sushi. What a glorious thing. The butcher takes the beast of the field and turns it into Japanese Wagyu beef. I'm, I'm, you can tell I love Asian food. <laughs> the doctor, which many of you are, the nurse, takes the raw materials of the earth and turns it into medicine that heals bodies. The farmer reigns and rules over the crops and turns it uh, into food for us. The, the actor takes words on a page and turns it into a heartwarming story. The, the athlete takes a ball and turns it into our joy over the weekend for millions. The student takes knowledge in a book and turns it into a worldview that shapes the, the earth. The stay-at-home mom takes three screaming kids and somehow turns that into three actual human beings who love Jesus. Whatever it is that you do for work, it's significant. The majestic God looks at you and says, create order and beauty through your work as my ambassador, as my representative. And so this is why God is mindful of us. He, yes, he is majestic in the earth, above the heavens, from the mouth of babies, but he's also mindful, meaning who you are matters. He cares. Even if you did nothing for the rest of your life, say you were on a bed the rest of your life, didn't contribute anything to society, you matter because you're made in God's image. And what you do matters. Whatever your job is, God has crowned you as his ambassador to rule and reign over his creation. So what you're doing for your job matters. And then final point here on this, God's mindful because he comes, he visits, he, 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 he intercedes. This is, our, we'll close with this, verse 4. What is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You know what's really interesting? If you, uh, I, I don't imagine many of you have a King James version of a Bible with you right now, but if you did, you would see that verse 4 says, it's slightly differently, it says, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And look at this, the son of man that thou visitest him. The KJV uses uh, visit because this Hebrew word care actually at its root means to go out and find. It can also mean to visit. It can also mean to intercede. <clears throat> so this is saying the son of man cares. He, he, he goes out and finds. He intercedes. He visits. What is David thinking here? David is saying, what are we that you even know we exist, that you know our name, that you fill your mind with us, and that you visit us? You're so great, you're so big, that this vastness is small to you, it's the product of your fingers, and yet you, you, we fill your mind to the point of you coming to meet us where we are. Now, how in the world does David know that? Well, David didn't know it fully yet. But he was pointing to what we now know. That Jesus Christ visited us. He cared for us. How do we know? He came down to be where we are. That is the ultimate proof that the being behind the universe cares about you. In fact, do you know in the Christmas story in Luke chapter 1, when Zechariah hears of God's plan of salvation through Jesus Christ, he says, Blessed be the Lord of Israel, for he has what? Visited and redeemed his people. What David's saying here, what he's pointing to is that here's how you can know that this enormous universe isn't going to chew you up and spit you out. Here's how you know your life counts. Here's how you know why you matter to the creator God. Because he came to meet you where you are. Now, you might ask, why didn't God just bring us to him? Why did he come down to meet us where we are? Well, verse 2 tells us because we're surrounded by evil. Verse 2 uh, is actually the only verse in Psalm 8 that Jesus ever quotes. It says, Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, obviously, avenger is not a positive word. It's a negative word, right? It's a vengeful word. This is pointing to what we saw last week in Psalm 2, that Jesus is going to come and crush his enemies who have done evil. So what verse 2 is essentially saying is, this world is full of brokenness and evil and foes and enemies, hateful people. What's God going to do about it all? 
And after describing this majestic God in verses 1 through 3, a God so huge he has to stoop down to see the earth and the heavens, he says he's going to deal with evil in the world out of the mouths of babies and infants. What does all this mean? And we find out later in the Gospels in Matthew chapter 21 when Jesus quotes this verse. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus Christ rides into Jerusalem as the Messiah at the end of his life. And people were expecting a Messiah to come, but they thought the Messiah would be riding on a giant horse, a white horse, as a general with his soldiers behind him to conquer all his enemies. But instead, Jesus Christ came into Jerusalem riding on a little donkey. And the procession following him was not strong, muscular soldiers, but the poor and the blind and the lame and children. And they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, the son of David has come. And the religious leaders and the respectable people, frustrated, came up to Jesus and said, tell that rabble to be quiet. You're not the Messiah. You're not a conquering king. They shouldn't even be here following you. And Jesus looks at them in Matthew 21 and says, haven't you read Psalm 8, verse 2? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, I have prepared praise. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, don't you know how God deals with evil in this broken world? As great a God as he is, he deals with evil through weakness, through suffering. He deals with it in a way so differently than you and I can conceive. And the, in the ultimate example of Psalm 8, verse 2, the ultimate example of God destroying evil through the cries of a baby Glory and power manifested in this world, and God became a little child, crying. He was born in a manger, and, and he grew up. And instead of accumulating power, he gave it all up. He surrendered it all. And he went to the cross. And this time, it was not the cries of a hungry child that saved us, but the weeping of a sorrowful, broken man crushed under the weight of sin in our place. Why? Why would God go on a cross and die like that? Because he was mindful of us. On the cross, you were on his mind. He went to the cross with names That is the ultimate proof that the creator, the being behind the universe, cares about you. Little you, little you, he cares about little you. You fill his big mind, little you. So much so he was willing to visit you, to become a baby, to meet you where you are. To become weak and die for you. And here's what all that means. It means you're not junk. It means you matter. You're worth what someone is willing to pay for you. And the creator behind the universe says, I'll pay with my blood. That's the most expensive price ever paid. So you're valuable. Take that to your troubles today. Apply that to all of your afflictions today. Look up at the heavens and say, this God came to visit me. And let it change everything about you. We have a majestic God and a mindful God, a God who cares, who crowns, who comes. And like that famous Christmas lyric says, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared in what? The soul felt its worth. Let your soul feel how worthy it is by seeing Jesus come to die for you. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Merry Christmas. He came for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we recognize that we often replace your beauty with lesser beauties of things you've made. And we idolize them. We godify them. Forgive us of our sin. Help us to see that you are the being who made all this. Help us to delight in all that you made and all you are. Give us a new, a fresh wonder today and awe today of who, who it is that, that we worship. 
I pray for the person who seemed to have lost the wow factor they have when they think about you. Would you restore that in them right now? Maybe not now, maybe this week. Show them how great you are. I pray for the skeptic in the room that they would see that they actually do matter, unlike what their beliefs really believe. That there is a God who made them, who died for them. May they come to Christ now, today. May today be the day of salvation. And I pray for our church, God. You, you've grown us. You've given us a building. You've given us an elevator. Here we are. May we be a church known that looks at the God of Psalm 8 and says, wow, who are we that you're mindful of us? And may we worship you rightly, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.